Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. Like I said this morning, my name is Tim and uh, I am really delighted to be here. I look forward every single Sunday to being here with you guys and it has really been a joy and a privilege. And uh, before we get into our conversation this morning, I have a question for you, all right? I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about it. Maybe write it down somewhere or put some ideas in your phone. But here's the question. What would you say is the sign that someone is spiritually young? As you talk to them, as you listen to them, as you spend time with them, you have no idea how long they've been following Jesus. What are some of the signs that would make you think they are spiritually young? Uh, maybe you, you meet somebody and you go, hmm, I feel like they're probably a little immature in their faith. What would be those things? What would be the evidence of that? Well, today we are week four in 1 Corinthians. And so while you're thinking about those answers, I just want to give you a quick recap. Week one, we talked about how the church of Corinth was a messed up church all sorts of sin, problems, issues, and divisions, and they were blessed by God. Then week two, Joel came, and he preached about unity, and he talked about how if a church is going to be healthy, vital, and effective, that it needed to be unified. And then last week, we talked about unity, and we talked about the center of that unity needs to be the cross. And so the church of Corinth, they were messed up, and there was a lot of division, and much of that division in Corinth, Paul is saying, is a result of their immaturity. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles in the back. We would love to give them away to you. We're also going to put the text here on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's going to go through a a couple of different illustrations, and the first one he's going to talk about is babies, all right? Verse 1, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. Why? For you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Ouch. Paul comes to this church and he says, look, I wanted to talk to you like adults. I really wanted to level with you, but I can't because you're acting like babies. So I've got to talk to you. I've got to treat you like a baby. And so last week we talked about how the cross divides all of humanity into two different groups, right? That is non-Christians and Christians, and in this passage, Paul takes those Christians and he divides those into two big groups. That is spiritual adults and spiritual children. And here's what we need to know is that spiritual maturity can't be defined by a length of time. Meaning there are people who have been a follower of Christ for 10, 20, maybe 30 years and there is still a spiritual immaturity. And there are some people, they've been, they've been a follower of Christ for maybe two or three or five years, and they're really mature. It's not necessarily a time thing. However, I really do believe the longer you and I walk with Jesus, that we should begin to look like him more and act like our old self less. 
And so spiritual maturity, it's not always how long you've been following Jesus, right? Think about a 10-day-old baby, right? A 10-day-old baby in diapers, super cute, right? Even a 10-month-old baby in diapers is really cute. And then, as you know, the more solid food they eat, the more they tend to smell a little bit. But a 10-year-old in diapers, something is either physically wrong, and they have a condition that warrants it, or there's some really weird parenting techniques, right? And spiritual maturity is different than physical maturity. And Paul is saying, look, I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to treat you like spiritual adults, but I couldn't because you're acting like a baby, and I do the same thing with my kids, right? I, I have a, an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And sometimes they don't act their age, right? And we have to say, look, you are acting like a baby, and now you have to go take a nap like a baby. And Paul's doing the same thing. See, you're old enough to be off the milk. What's going on? So I asked you at the beginning, what would be the evidence of someone who is young in their faith. Let me show you that evidence. Verse 3, Paul says, You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So the mark of an immature believer is jealousy and quarreling. What exactly is jealousy? I think we know it when we see it in others, but are we really good at seeing it in ourselves? Here's how I would define jealousy. Jealousy says, I deserve better. I want that. When things are going really, really good, I am so happy, I'm so pleased, but when things are going bad, I am frustrated and irritated, and I deserve better. And in Corinth, there were a lot of different temples all over Corinth, and how people would interact with each other is they would compare their temple to someone else's temple. They would say, my temple is better than yours. My temple leader is better than yours. No, my temple leader is better than yours, right? And the Christians began to bring that into the church, and they began to fight, and they became divisive. And Paul was the one that planted that church in Corinth. And he left, and he went to Ephesus. And when he left, a guy named Apollos came up, and he began to pastor that church. And some people said, well, I'm of Paul. I really love Paul. Paul is my guy. Some people said, no, I'm of Apollos. Apollos is my guy. Some people said, well, no, I'm really of Cephas. That's Peter. I'm really of him. And they began to split and divide over these things. Jealousy, quarreling, fighting. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with jealousy? Paul says, here's the point. A key sign of spiritual immaturity is a lack of unity. I want to let you know, I know that this campus has gone through some turbulence, we're not talking about this because I get a sense there's a disunity. In fact, I think it's the opposite. As I spend time talking with you, as I spend time with you guys, I feel like there is a really great sense of unity. 
And we're talking about it, not because there's a sense of disunity, but we're talking about unity because Paul makes a big deal about unity. In fact, 25% of 1 Corinthians is talking about unity. Unity is so important, and we've got to keep our eye on unity. And so a key sign of spiritual immaturity is a lack of unity. That's what we're after. We want to be a church that is healthy and vital because healthy things grow. When Christians are fighting, something is not right. In fact, in another letter, Paul is writing to Titus, and he says this to Titus. Listen to this. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them twice. After that, have what? Nothing to do with them. Wow. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Unity is so important to God. And so Paul writes this letter to Titus and says, Okay, Titus, as you lead a church, as you shepherd people, be aware there are going to be some divisive people that come in, and there's some be, be some divisive people that come within, and you need to warn them once, twice, and then get rid of them. That's serious. So here's the point of the first illustration. The first point is this. Spiritual maturity is most clearly seen by how we treat each other, not by how much knowledge we have. Right? The proof of spiritual maturity is not how much you know. It's not how much Bible information you've downloaded. If someone knows a lot of facts about the Bible, here's what this means. They know a lot of facts about the Bible. That's it. You and I, we can know a lot of information, but if we're not living it out, if we're not treating others with love, then we've missed it. There's one time in Matthew where uh, an expert of the law comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I got a pop quiz for you. What is the greatest law? Out of all the laws, which one, Jesus, is the greatest? And here's what Jesus says. You got it. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord. Love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor. Love God, love others. These are what you ought to do. Love God. Obey what he says. And then love others. Get along with people. So Jesus boils down all of the Old Testament law with these two things. You can hang everything on these two ideas. Love God, love others. Being unified is about getting along with people. In fact, in chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes and he says, look, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Are we saying we don't really want you to know a whole lot about the Bible? Not at all. In fact, we want you to know a lot about the Bible, but we want you to live it out. We want you to be a doer of what God's word says. 
Growing in our maturity happens when we are doers. James says, don't just be a hearer, someone who listens, but be a doer of the word. Why is that so important? Because you and I live in a time where knowledge is so accessible. I mean, you and I can literally find out anything in about three seconds without even using our fingers, right? I mean, today, right now, hey, Siri, how far away is the moon from Earth? The average distance between Earth and the moon is 238,856 miles. 238,856 miles, and boom, I sound like a super genius to my kids. But let me tell you, me knowing the distance from the earth to the moon will not help me fly a spaceship. Okay, if I got into a spaceship or the shuttle, Siri is not helping me do that. I have the knowledge, right? But I don't know how to do that. And the same is true about being a follower of Christ. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to really live it out. So the first illustration was about babies. The second illustration is about farming. Let's look at verse 5. After all, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Why? Verse 9, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. People are arguing in this church who they are more loyal to. Who are you going to be more loyal to? Are you going to be loyal to Apollos, Paul, or who? And Paul says, look, the leaders of this church were just servants. Nothing more. That's it. And I get it. I have my favorite people that I want to listen to. I have my favorite people that I want to read. I have my favorite authors. They're my favorite podcasts and my favorite YouTube preachers that I want to listen to. And they're just people. They're just servants. God is the one that causes you and I to grow. That's it. He might use different people in your lives, but those people, we are simply instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. That's it. And so this church was dividing. They were splitting over who they were more loyal to. And I want to tell you, if you're growing spiritually, it's not because of me or Jeff or Joel or Mason or Don, but it's because God is doing the work in your life. Now, Look, I know he's using those people. He's using your small group leaders. He's using the people who led you in your discovery class or your starting point class. He's using the people in this church. And we are simply instruments. 
And if God is going to grow this church, it's because he is doing the work. And so what Paul is saying, someone comes along, they plant. Someone comes along, they water. But God is doing the work. We shouldn't have a significant amount of loyalty, an unquestioned amount of loyalty to people. We need to have a loyalty to God and God alone. And that's what Paul is saying here. Sometimes there's a pendulum swing, right? We tend to follow people with this unquestioned loyalty. And then the pendulum swings over here, and we look at all these other people, and we're like, they can't do anything right. They're terrible. What Paul's saying is, they're just people. They're just servants. If you're growing spiritually, God's using those people, but he's the one that is growing us. Verse 7, he says, neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. We're just nothing. I am nothing. I'm not anything significant. I'm just a person. God is making you grow. God makes our church grow. So Paul is going to go on to the next five verses, and he basically says, look, church leaders, they're going to have to give an account one day. All the things they do as a pastor I'll have to give an account for how I led and how I shepherded this church. That's what he's going on to say. And he says, look, they're going to have to stand before God and his grace and do that. Why is this so important? Because disunity takes place in a church of one or two ways. People fight with leaders or they fight with people. I want to tell you, unity is so important. If this church is going to be healthy and vital and grow, it's got to be unified. And right now, I think that it is. I get the sense that it really is, that we are unified, and I love that. But we've got to keep our eye focused on that. In our church staff, we have a saying, and it goes like this. We talk to people, not about people. We talk to people, not about people. Meaning if you have an issue, if you have a question, if you have a concern, if you have a problem with something that's going on here, Come talk to me. Look, this sermon is not my baby, all right? So if you have a problem with what I'm saying or how I'm saying it or what's going on here, come talk to me. I would love, I would relish the opportunity to talk with you. I would hate for you to be frustrated or irritated and just start talking to other people and then not really get the answers. And I'll be honest, if I don't have the answers, whether it's the Bible or something else, I'll go find the answers and then we'll have another conversation, I want this church to be thriving and healthy. So Christian leaders, we're just servants, and God just happens to use us as instruments in his hands. So Paul talked about babies. He talked about farming. And now we're going to look at the temple. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. So I kind of think that Paul was from South Corinth, right? Because this you is plural. So he's saying, don't y'all know that y'all yourselves are God's temple, singular, and that God's spirit dwells in y'all's midst? He's he's probably not from South Corinth. But I want you to get the picture, right? He's saying, y'all, all of you, in the church, are singular God's temple. 
And later, he's going to say, your body is a temple. But in this passage, in these verses, he's not talking about your body, all right? He's saying, the church, you all, plural, make up the temple, singular. It's not the building. It's the people. And then in verse 17, he's going to give a warning. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, y'all, God will destroy that person For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. And I really wrestled all week trying to figure out who is this warning? Who is God going to destroy? And and at first, I really thought, okay, maybe he's talking about non-Christians. Like, God's not going to destroy a Christian, but Paul's writing to Christians. But then I noticed this word, anyone. Anyone, if anyone, Christian or non-Christian, if we bring harm, if we destroy, that word destroy means to cause harm in a physical manner or in outward circumstances. It can mean to ruin. It can mean to spoil. It can mean to corrupt. If anyone brings harm to God's temple, there's a warning, and it's this. God will destroy you. Now, I don't know what that means. I'm not even going to try to speculate what that means. But here's what I think is true. When we mess with God, we lose. When we mess with his church, we lose. We got to take it serious. How we treat it, how we act, this is God's temple. And I believe that God is giving this warning to everyone. And he's saying, look, as Christians, when we backbite, when we gossip, when we divide, when we tear each other apart, you're doing it to yourself. We all are the temple of God. That's an amazing thing that we get to be a part of. And it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to take church unity to seriously. So Paul gives us these illustrations. He talks about babies, farming, and the temple. And then he concludes in verse 18. He says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. It's so easy to think that we've got it figured out. It's so easy to deceive ourselves, but you know what? I've never met a married couple who didn't have conflicts or problems to work through. I've never met a church or a youth group that didn't have conflicts or issues to work through, and it is easy to think, oh, we're doing so great. We're doing awesome. There are no problems on the horizon. Unity is not an issue. And Paul says, don't deceive yourself. There's always people that are going to see things differently than you and I. They're going to see things differently politically. They're going to see things different spiritually. And we can't be divided over those things. What Paul is saying, don't fool yourself. What we tend to do is we tend to do a lot of finger pointing. Right? It's like this big old foam finger. 
We like to walk around. We like to say, like, look what you did. Look what you did. Look what you did. Look what you did. And, oh, boy, look what you did. It's your fault. You, your fault. Right? We are so good at doing finger pointing. And what Paul, amen. <laughs> and what Paul is saying is that instead of doing finger pointing, look, it looks ridiculous. And if I walked around with this all day pointing this in your face, it would be annoying and it would be obnoxious. And everybody else sees it when people are finger pointing. And what we've got to do is we've got to do mirror gazing. We've got to take some time to really evaluate our own lives. Mature Christians practice mirror gazing instead of finger pointing. And today we're going to take communion and I want to give you some time to do that. It's going to look different than what we've done in the past. And so let me set the stage for communion. First, I want to give you a little bit of context, all right? We're going to set the stage for communion. Then Mason's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in a song. And while he leads us in that song, he's going to give us an opportunity to do some mirror gazing and some reflection. And then, after that song, we'll take communion, all right? So if you're not familiar, when Jesus was with his disciples... He came into his father, he's out, he's about to leave and go prepare a place, and he's talking to his disciples, and they're having a meal, and he's explaining what communion is and what it's not. And he says, I want you to have this meal in remembrance of me. And he has this bread, and I just want to let you know, you don't have to take it out yet, but this breadish, gluten-free, taste-free substance it just symbolizes the body of Christ. And this grape juice-ish type stuff, it symbolizes the blood of Jesus. And as Jesus was sitting with his disciples, he's saying, look, the bread, I want you to take the bread, in, and it, it, it symbolizes my body, right? I died on the cross for you. These elements don't have any power to save you or to redeem you. They don't. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower and you're all new to this thing, don't take it. That's okay. And I want you to let, let you know that, that they won't redeem you. They don't offer that kind of power. They're simply an opportunity for us to sit and remember what Jesus did on the cross. They can't offer you salvation. They simply remind us of what Jesus did. And so he, he broke bread with his disciples. And they had wine. We're not going to pass out wine today. And he said, the cup, it symbolizes how you are. You were guilty in your sins, and it washed you. It made you white as snow. If you know Jesus as your Savior, I would invite you to to participate in that today. But Paul gives a warning in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, don't take communion lightly, meaning we need to do some mirror gazing first. And the meal reminds us that you and I were redeemed by the Lamb of God. And so these simply point us to Christ. I'm gonna pray and after I pray, Mason's going to lead us in a song. And I just want you to take that time 
to just reflect, pray, and do some mirror gazing, and then we'll walk into communion. Heavenly Father, we recognize Jesus is the Lamb of God. He died on the cross for our sins. He covered them with his blood. And today, as we get ready to take communion, I ask that you would help prepare our hearts for communion, that we wouldn't take it lightly, that we would reflect, examine ourselves. And if we shouldn't take it today, make it really obvious that we should just sit back and watch. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said to his disciples, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup which symbolizes the blood that was shed for all of our sins. And he said, drink this in remembrance of me.
Thank you, Mason. Amen. We serve the Lamb of God, the amazing God who created this thing called the church. That's why unity is worth fighting for. John Calvin said this. He says, those that extol men above measure Strip them of their true dignity, for the grand distinction of them all is that they gain disciples to Christ, not themselves. No one here at Bridgewater is trying to gain disciples to themselves. I don't want disciples of Tim. I want to see more and better disciples of Jesus, and that's it. When division happens... Discussions must be made. We've got to fight for unity. The unity of the church is your responsibility. It's our responsibility. If you call Bridgewater home, unity is your responsibility. If you're visiting from another church and you don't plan on coming back next week, unity is your responsibility at your church. This is on us. And so, by way of application today, I want to end with what Paul says in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Leave you with this challenge. Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 3 say this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. Make every effort. Do we do that? Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. If you look in the mirror, do you look and wonder, what is it that needs to change about me?
How can I help our church become more unified? How can I love God more? What would that look like at work? What would that look like at home? If I was going to love others more, what would that look like here? If spiritual maturity is seen how we treat people, how is it that you treat people? Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, we are amazed by your grace. We're thankful that we are called to be a part of your church. And within this church, you are doing some great things. God, you know you call us to unity, and we know that it's worth fighting for. So we pray that as we finish out today, you would help us to not only fight for unity, but to make every effort to keep the unity. But God, as we close, we don't want to forget our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, and we want to lift up those individuals, ask that you would continue to work and strengthen them. Father, the only thing that's going to end this war is you. God, what if you begin to save people through the gospel and through the cross, and you radically changed the lives of those Russians, and you radically changed the lives of everybody who's involved in this, and you would breathe peace into this situation. But as we leave, help us to make every effort to keep the unity. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you guys to stand and sing one more.